Well, hello and good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? It's a beautiful day outside. It's certainly a day uh, worthy to uh, praise God for his beautiful creation. And I'm so glad that you decided to join us here this morning. Um, as Mandy said, my name is David Jacob. And I, again, just want to welcome anybody who's visiting with us for the first time, maybe the second time, or you're just sort of, sort of maybe still kicking the tires, kind of seeing if this is the right place for you. We're just so delighted that you're here with us. And I also just want to welcome anybody who's uh, visiting with us through our live stream. Thank you so much for joining us through our live stream, whether you're watching us now or catching the, rec the recording sometime later. I love that we have opportunity to, to worship together here as well as the people who connect virtually. Um, as we are now a little over a week into the month of February, I also want to say happy Black History Month. Um, as, as an intent, yeah, go ahead, yeah. As an intentionally multicultural, multi-ethnic church, it's really important to us to, to honor and celebrate the rich cultural diversity that we have here in this room, but, uh, but even beyond this room, the wonderful and beautiful heritage and culture of the black community. I know that around this time, I learn more and more about the heroes and the contributions and uh, just so much more than I did before about the beauty of the black community. So I just wanna honor, um, honor the black community in this moment in light of Black History Month. Um, so it is my privilege to continue our current sermon series that we're in, a series that we're just simply calling One Thing. And during the series, we're going to hear from a number of different voices, and each person has been challenged to think about that one thing that they can point to that is undeniably God woven into the fabric of their lives, that one thing that consistently connects them to God. And Pastor Gina opened the series talking about his one thing as he's grown up uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a pastor's kid in the church that... Um, his one thing was the gathering of God's people, the church, and how uh, that has been a consistent grounding presence in his life, uh, a, a presence that has shaped him, uh, a presence that we enjoy. As a pastor's kid myself, who grew up in the church, I just simply can't imagine like the major milestones of my life without thinking about my extended church family. I mean, I have aunties and uncles and theos and theas and, and, and just cousins that aren't related to me at all, but they are my family because I grew up among you all, and I consider you my family. And so I really connected with that because I really do believe that the church, the gathering of God's people, is a blessing, a blessing that we can cherish, a blessing that God uses to shape us into the people that we are. Last week, Renee, I thought she gave a fantastic talk about, she has been, about how God has been teaching her that who she is, who God has made her to be, is infinitely more important than what she does. Last week in our men's small group, it was just easy for us. I don't know if it's just you know, something that guys go through more than women. I don't know. Renee gave the talk, so obviously women can connect with this too, but it's, it, it, in our men's small group, it was just so easy for us to identify how our view of our worth is so connected to what we produce, what we do. And I loved her sermon last week. It was just such a sweet, sweet reminder that God 
wants me to live with him and be with him and not just live for him. We understand the difference? God wants me to know who I am and who he is, not just wants me to get to work doing stuff. It was just such a beautiful, beautiful reminder. I love how this series is shaping up. And so when Pastor Gino asked me about what my one thing was, I immediately knew what I wanted to talk about. It's the thing that I include in absolutely every one of my prayers. It's a, it's a thing that, that, that I use as the framework to help me understand the different events of my life, the framework of, of, of how things have shaped themselves in my life. Uh, uh, it, it's the way that I can make sense of my life in light of God's presence, and that is God's goodness and faithfulness. God's goodness and faithfulness. And I know that I was supposed to pick one thing, but the screen, you see, it looks like two things, but it's a trick. Don't believe what you see, okay? No, honestly, look, when I, when I pray, I, I just say, thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. To me, it's like one word. It's one idea. It was, it was hard for me to think of how I could just talk about God's goodness without talking about his faithfulness or talk about his faithfulness without talking about his goodness. To me, it's just this really long word. And so my one thing, whether I'm cheating or not, is God's goodness and his faithfulness. I just simply can't explain my life any other way than through the lens of God's goodness and faithfulness. In my highest moments, I praise God for his goodness and his faithfulness. And in my lowest moments, I cling to God's goodness and his faithfulness. This is the one thing, the one thread woven throughout the tapestry of my life. God's goodness and his faithfulness, it's, it's part of my story. Um, you know, and honestly, I, I think that as we look throughout Scripture, we see the Bible connecting these two ideas, reinforcing the connection all throughout Scripture. I'll just read a few passages in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. How glorious is our God. He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything his, he does is just and fair. In other words, he is good. And he is faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. Psalm 89, 2 says, Your unfailing love will last forever. Your faithfulness is, an, as, is as enduring as the heavens. From the widely loved and often quoted Psalm 23, maybe you've heard the passage that says, You know, the Lord is my shepherd. This is the, that psalm. He's, and, the, and the psalm ends by saying, Surely your goodness and unfailing love. Other, other translations say, Good, Surely your goodness and faithfulness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Over and over, the, the authors of Scripture remind us of the goodness. Of God and his unfailing commitment and faithfulness to us. And oftentimes they say it in one breath. And I just love, I love God. I love God because as I look at my life, as I look at, and, and as I know some of your stories, it's just so easy for me to see his goodness and his faithfulness. And so I want to dig into this a little bit more this morning. And I want to 
actually read an extended passage, uh, more than just these few verses here. We're going to read uh, a, a lengthy passage from um, the book of Lamentations. It's not a book that we dip into very often, but we're going to read from Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, You're welcome to follow along with me. In fact, I'd love it if you would do that. If you have your Bible with you today, you're welcome to take that out. If you you track along on your phone, that's how I read my Bible. Um, The words will also be displayed on the screen. So we're going to dig into this goodness and faithfulness of God. We're going to start reading in Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Before I do that, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are steadfast, that you are perfect, that you are pure, you're all-powerful, and I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you that you have an unrelenting, passionate pursuit of us because you are good. Because you are faithful, you demonstrate that goodness in our lives. I thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. I thank you for this body here. I thank you for this gathering. I ask that you would bless us this morning. I ask that you would go beyond any of the words that might come out of my mouth. I ask that you speak to each one of us, including me, anybody who might be hearing this, God. We just trust. We trust that you are going to speak to us and reach us where we are. Would you bless our time this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 So Lamentations, starting in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, so please bear with me. I'm going to try my best. Please give me some grace. Um, So it says, starting in verse 1, it says, I am the one who has seen the afflictions that come from the rod of the Lord's anger. He has led me into darkness, shutting out all light. He has turned his hand against me and again all day long. He has made my skin and flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and surrounded me with the anguish and distress. He has buried me in a dark place like those long dead. He has walled me in and I cannot escape. He has bound me in heavy chains. And though I cry and shout, he has shut out my prayers. He has blocked my way with the high stone wall. He has made my road crooked. We're talking about the goodness of God, so just stay with me here. (laughs) Stay with me, all right? It's going to go somewhere. (laughs) Verse 10, he has hidden like a bear or a lion waiting to attack me. He has dragged me off the path and torn me into pieces, leaving me helpless and devastated. He has drawn his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He shot his arrows deep into my heart, my My own people laugh at me all day long. They sing their mocking songs. He has filled me with bitterness and given me a bitter cup of sorrow to drink. He has made me chew on gravel. He has rolled me in dust. Peace has been stripped away, and I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time, as I grieve over my loss. Yet, yet, I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. 
I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord, and it is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. Let them sit alone in the silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let them lie face down in the dust, for there may be hope at last. Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them and accept the insults of their enemies, for no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love, for he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them harm. This is just half of the, half of the chapter, and I'm going to stop here. But I think this passage captures so much about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. It's a heavy passage. That's a heavy passage. I think there's a reason why we don't read from Lamentations very often. <laughs> As a preacher, I mean, but listen. It's heavy. It's filled with sorrow and angst and pain. You could, you could hear it in every word. It's a difficult passage. At least at the beginning, it seems contrary to the picture of God that we often like to imagine. That Maybe I'll just talk about myself. That I prefer to imagine about God. I like to imagine God as an all-powerful God. A God who knows everything is right and just and pure and strong but he's also cuddly and holds me in a warm embrace. I like to have this picture of, a, of an amazing and awesome God who will also hold my hand as we frolic through a pasture of flowers. I like that God. I don't know that I like to think about God hiding in the cut as a lion, waiting to come and pounce on me. This is a tough, tough passage. Instead, the author tells us of a God who allowed the Israelites, his own chosen people, to be captured by an enemy nation. And even though this was a just decision, even though God had every right to do this, and even though it was the right thing to do as his people, his chosen people, unrepentantly strayed from God's standards and committed terrible sins time and time again, and God would give them a chance and they would do it again and again, and even though it was the right thing to do, it was just, it still doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like the actions of a good God to let his people be taken away into captivity. It feels harsh. Honestly, to me, it feels a little over the top. But then in the same passage, just a few verses later, the author heralds God's greatness, and he rejoices in the faithful love of God, his mercy, and his goodness. Then he talks about, he talks about how God causes grief, and he's compassionate. At the same time, this is such a layered and heavy and challenging passage. It's a whirlwind of emotion, if I've ever read one. It's a little difficult for me to wrap my mind around, Again, as a preacher, as a believer, it's so much easier to cherry-pick bumper sticker verses that we like to repeat over and over and over 
to talk about how God is so good and he essentially does what we want and he takes care of us all the time. And, but here we see a broader picture of our awesome God. It's heavy. But it's important that we wrestle with this. And what can we learn from this passage? What is it that the author and the people who sang this song, this is, this is written as a song, what did they know that could help us and be a helpful reminder today? There's a couple things I want to highlight. The first thing is that they seem to know, they seem to know that God is good in spite of our circumstances. God is good in spite of our circumstances. Listen, this passage comes from the, uh, a book of the Bible called Lamentations. It's a collection of laments. These songs were often sung at, at funerals. They, they, these were intentionally sorrowful songs. It's a book about the, uh, about the cries of a captured people in a desperate and terrible, terrible situation. This isn't just a bad day or a bad year. Their circumstances were dire, dire, and seemingly hopeless. Circumstances of the author, as he described it, were terrible. But he also understood that they were arranged by God. And even still, even in this dire and seemingly hopeless situation, the goodness of God was never in question. The author never questioned the goodness of God. Why? Man, that's not how my brain works. I couldn't write something like this. If there's ever a group of people who could formulate an argument against the goodness of God as they sat in captivity, wouldn't it be them? Well, I think the author knew what King David knew and so many other psalmists knew is that the circumstances of our lives don't define the character of God. Circumstances of your life don't define the character of God, of my life. Listen, God is God, no matter what. And when my life gets to determine who God is, guess who, who, who's the real God in the equation? God is God no matter what. And by their proclamations, in captivity, in dire straits, they proclaim that he is good. You know, I've heard some very well thought out, intelligent, philosophical, researched arguments about the idea, uh, against the idea of God's inherent goodness. I don't agree with it. I think their premises fail in the end, I've, I've heard some sort of methodical approaches to this, but I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. In my experience, and the vast majority of people that I've encountered, as, I've, as people have wrestled with this, as I have wrestled with this, maybe you've wrestled with at the same time. So many people make conclusions about the goodness of God based on their circumstances. We are so we or somebody we know has has gone through something. And God, God must not be good because of it. 
Maybe life isn't going as expected. Something bad has happened. And we put God on the hook for that. They're different. Things are different than what we want. And God is to blame. How can God be good when this thing happened or that thing didn't happen in my life? Listen, this is a really important question to ask and answer and to wrestle with. As somebody who just, I'm I'm an engineer by trade. I'm wired a certain way. I like conclusive, well-defined, clear arguments. I like clarity. I like things to be neatly packaged. But we can't necessarily do that when we talk about the things, uh, when we talk about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. This is something that we have to wrestle with. We have to, we have to read what, we be- what I believe to be true, what we believe to be true about, about the truth of God's goodness and his faithfulness in Scripture, and we have to reconcile our, our lived experience, right? We have, to, we have to wrestle through that. It's a valid question that we have to wrestle with. I wish that I could lay out just this perfect, clear, concise argument that will convince you. It says, hey, listen, the Bible says that God is good, so therefore, you know, case closed. We're all done. Conversation over. And we can all go on and, and, and fully embrace the idea that God is good, but we, st- we still have to go out and, and maybe we're going to see something else out in the world that might rub up against that. As we wrestle with this, we must, we must recognize that the goodness of God is mysterious. It's mysterious. We may never know how and why God decides to do certain things. There are some things that seem to have a cause and effect relationship. You know, I do a certain thing and therefore, you know, this, I do this good thing and sort of a good thing sort of comes back to my life. Sometimes that works itself out, but so many other times, things don't line up. There's so many other times that it seems like things just are unfair. Why is it that God blesses people who, who do bad things? Why is it that God withhold, seems to withhold blessings from people who, have, who are striving toward him? Why? Why? And I realize that I'm not adding much clarity to this, and I'm supposed to be able to tell you, hey, God is good, and we all cheer, and, you know, and, then, and then we go live our lives. And what I'm trying to help us do is to put us in kind of a critical thinking mode where we take on the responsibility to wrestle with this idea that God is good in spite of our circumstances. He is good in spite of our circumstances. And I think that we draw closer to that truth as we lean on him. We draw closer to him as we, as we commune with him, as we connect with him, as we pray, and as we search the scriptures and discover who God is. And maybe we will never fully understand everything, but we, that doesn't mean that we can't make a determination that God is good. Are you guys tracking with me? I know, I, I know I'm sort of going down this, this winding road here, but stick with me, okay? I wish I could just simply say God is good. But we have to wrestle with this. We have to wrestle with the complexity of this. And the primary way that we do that is to lean toward God, to discover 
who God is. And that's why it's so important to have a relationship with God. We can't just go based on what our grandma tells us, by what the preacher tells us, by what our neighbor tells us. We have to experience God for who he is in the context of relationship. I think there's another thing that we need to do as we wrestle through this and work this out. As we seek after God, I would caution you, I would caution you from falling into what I call the trap of deservedness. The trap of deservedness is the tendency to use our sense of deservedness and entitlement to determine whether God is good. You know, it's a trap that any person can fall into, but I think church folks fall into this a little bit more. Because it's church folks who will say, God, I've been serving faithfully for years. I've given so much of my life. Why aren't I married? Why don't I have a family? Church folks who say, I've been giving my time and energy and resources to various ministries. I've been generous to my neighbors. Why aren't I getting that financial blessing that that guy on TV is telling me I'm supposed to get? Where's it at, God? You're supposed to be good. I deserve this. I've been giving and giving. I deserve this. God, I've been given so much of my life. I've sacrificed so much. Where are the blessings? I deserve this. Maybe we ask a different kind of questions. Maybe something doesn't happen. You feel like, or something happens that you feel like you don't deserve it. God, why does that person at work just torment me and regularly throws me under the bus? I've been trying to be a humble servant. I've been trying to reach people for you, extend your kingdom at work. Why? Why are they tormenting me, God? I don't deserve that. Why did that little baby get sick? What did they do to deserve that? God, I've been following you for years and years and years, and my family is still locked in a cycle of poverty and brokenness. I don't deserve it. Why do I deserve any of this? What did I do? Why do I suffer from the torments of racism and sexism and classism and all the other injustices of this world? I don't deserve it. It's a trap. We easily get wrapped up in the idea that for whatever reason, maybe it's cultural influence or pressures, for whatever reason we get wrapped up in the idea that we deserve to be happy. We deserve to be prosperous. And we deserve to get all the snacks of life that we want. You ever hear people talk like that? Don't look at your neighbor if they're the ones that. <laughs> but this is, this is what an easy trap that church people could fall into. We start demanding things of God. And maybe we don't use that word deserve, but we essentially do that. We expect, we feel entitled to a certain amount of blessings and all the riches of God in heaven. 
It's a trap. We deserve to be immune from the brokenness of the world. We deserve to be safe from all harm. And I realize this might sound really harsh, but the idea of deservedness and entitlement, it's just not found in the Bible. At least the Bible that I read. It's just not there. Now God promises us blessings. He says that he's going to do good things for us, but that that doesn't mean that we deserve it. You see the difference? God extends his goodness and generosity and his faithfulness, but that doesn't mean that we deserve it. You get what I'm saying? Deservedness is a trap. You know, not only is the idea of entitlement not found in the Bible, I feel like the Bible regularly tells us again and again, especially if we decide to follow Jesus, that life is going to be hard. You know, I say this all the time. I I feel like, you know, when Jesus was talking about his ministry and what it means to inherit the kingdom of God and how difficult it is and and everything that his followers are going to have to go through, you know, have to suffer through, I, I, I wonder if God, if Jesus was like trying to invite people or push people away. Like, like, Jesus, let's talk about your recruiting strategy here. You want to bring people in and tell them how they're going to, you know, inherit the beautiful, wonderful things of the kingdom of God. And, you know, hey, let's just keep it a little quiet about the hard things. But this is, honestly, this is why I love the Bible. Because the Bible shoots straight. The Bible tells you that if you pursue God, if you follow Jesus, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Jesus tells us that we have an enemy in Satan that actively wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He's out there, and he wants to harm you. He tells us the path of following him is narrow, and few people travel through it, travel down successfully. He tells us that we might be thought of as fools by the people around us. And we might be disowned by our families. And if it came to it, we might even die for him. This is what Jesus tells us. It's so contrary to the ideas of entitlement. This is why I love, love Jesus. He tells it like it is. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says it's going to be hard. This is the reality that the early church lived by as they were martyred and persecuted again and again. This is their understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 19, he says, so if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, man, that just sounds weird. If your mindset is that you deserve to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and free of harm. If you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right, and trust your lives to the God who created you. Why? Because he's faithful. He will never fail you. Whether we're talking about the people in exile in Babylon or members of the early church, they understood that their circumstances did not define God's goodness. How did they get through these tough moments then? 
I'm sure there's a few facets to that answer, but I think one critical facet to that answer is that they were able to disconnect the idea of entitlement from the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. Instead, they embraced the truth that God is good in the midst of our troubles. You see, God is good in spite of our circumstances. No matter what, God is good. In the highs, the lows, everything, God is good. That is who he is. We don't get to project and define God, right? But the beautiful message of the scriptures isn't just that God is inherently good, but God is good with us when we suffer. He is good to us, and he is faithful to us in the midst of our troubles, the Bible doesn't tell, us, doesn't tell us that we won't suffer in life. So what it tells us over and over again is that when we suffer, God is with us. This is the purest expression, in my opinion, of God's faithfulness to us. God's promise to his people is that he will never leave us or forsake us. It's nice to hear in the good times. Sure, it's nice to hear that God will never leave us or forsakers, but forsakers, but it means so much more in the hard times. It never leaves us. You know, I think back to some of the serious seasons of depression in my life, something that I've just struggled with on and off over the years. And one of those kind of serious moments within the last couple of years, I'm just reminded of Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter five. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Not blessed are those who mourn, straighten yourselves up, and, you know, figure it out. He says, I see you, and I'm going to comfort you. Again, I think about that famous verse from Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. Why? because you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. In my darkest moments, I have felt God's closeness. I have felt his goodness and his faithfulness. I felt it in my spirit, but I have also felt it through the love and the support of the community that rallies around me. My brothers and sisters in Christ who in my lowest moments will call out to me and reach, reach out to me and say, hey, I'm with you. I'm praying for you. I love you. Jesus loves you. Don't give up. It's the goodness and faithfulness of God. And that is just some ambiguous idea, but the expression of his love and faithfulness through the community of faith. I have felt that in my life. I felt the goodness of God's people. You know, I can also easily connect with the proclamation in Lamentations 3 where he says, The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, who search for him. You know, one of the most profound moments I've ever had with God wasn't on a mountaintop. It was actually at one of the lowest points of my life. I grew up as a pastor's kid, and I had been in church my entire life. But 
in my later years in high school and into my college years, uh, I drifted farther and farther away from Jesus and my connection to the church. I began to smoke marijuana regularly, drink to the point of blacking out. It was, it was a regular part of my life. I've, I failed out of college and lied to my family and friends about it. I, I was very far away from the God, from the life that God had wanted me to live. Just listening and watching all types of things that weren't good for my soul. And year after year, things got worse. My habits got worse and I got more isolated. All of my friends graduated and I was left, the, the lone person left on campus trying to maintain the habits that I thought would satisfy me and carry me through. And it wasn't long after I was left alone where I just reached the point where I just couldn't sink any further. And I remember that day like it was yesterday. I was at my lowest point and I cried out to God and he rescued me. And I immediately felt his presence and I felt his forgiveness. I didn't have to climb the proverbial mountain. I didn't have to go on some spiritual journey to find God. I didn't have to get my life together. I didn't have to do any of that. I didn't have to try to convince God to come back to me. God, please, I'm so sorry, please come back to me. I, I, I know I've run away from you. I didn't have to do any of that. But I've come to see so clearly over the years is that even though I was running away from God, he was still right there next to me. And all I had to do was just reach, and he was there. You see, God is faithful. He pursues us. He is, he is chasing us down, whether we like it or not. He loved me, and all I had to do was reach out to me, reach out to him. And the season that followed that moment was pretty intense. I drew closer to God. I, I really did feel like a brand new person, but I also fell into a different trap of deservedness. I remember carrying a, a shame and a guilt of everything I had done. I had hurt, I derailed my life. I had hurt the people around me. I had lied. I had done so many things. I felt like, and, and the result of that is that I felt like I didn't deserve the goodness of God. See, I feel like that's such a terrible, terrible trap that we could fall into. We limit. I know that I pushed away the goodness of God at different points in my life. I can think back to moments, whether it's a relationship that God was, you know, just sort of putting in my life, whether it's, you know, just maybe an escape from a certain habit or, or addiction or something like that. I remember pushing that away because I didn't feel like I deserved his goodness. And of course, of course, it doesn't make any sense at all when we consider the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And even to this day, I feel remnants. I feel echoes of that shame and that guilt, but I've learned to push through that. And that by doing that, by, by reminding myself of the truth of Scripture, Scripture that has come to mean so much to me, passages like 1 John 1.19, it says, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful. He is faithful to, and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us 
from all wickedness. It's not a matter of whether or not I deserve his goodness and his faithfulness. He is the one who grants it to me whether I like it or not. It's a gift from him. If I confess, he is the one who is faithful and just to forgive. Another passage that has become an anchor for my life is Romans 8, 38, and 39. Um, uh, And actually, I want to read that passage, but I actually want to start reading from verse 35 where it says, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, no. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from, the, from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or, or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the goodness and faithfulness of God expressed in what I call the no matter what love of God. This is his goodness and his faithfulness expressed in the no matter what love of God. Worship team, you can come start making your way up. Listen, no matter what you're going through, no matter what the circumstances of your life are, God is good and he is faithful and he loves you. No matter what you've done, God is good and he is faithful and he loves you. No matter what you're going to do, God is good and he is faithful and he loves you. There's nothing you could do about it. There's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. He is good and he is faithful and he will chase you down for the rest of your life. He is good and he is faithful. And God loves you so much. And he loves me so much that he sent Jesus to the earth to take on the sin of the world. And Jesus was condemned to die a death that you and I deserve to die. We want to talk about deservedness? This is is what the Bible teaches us about deservedness. We deserve to die. But Jesus took our punishment so that we wouldn't have to pay that price. We deserve to pay the ultimate price, but God loves us so much that Jesus took it upon himself to take down that sin and die for us. And he did that to rescue us and to reunite us with our Father in heaven. We're offered a gift of new life with God, but it's up to us. It's up to us to embrace this goodness and this faithfulness. It's up to us to embrace this free gift of, uh, of God's love and mercy and forgiveness, to put our faith in Jesus. It's up to us 
to give him the reins of our life. Listen, my dear friends. God has been pursuing you your entire life not to hurt you or to punish you. He's been pursuing you so that you might have a new life in him. And I can't promise you that if you embrace this goodness and faithfulness that your life is going to be what you want it to be and that you're going to get all your list of demands and things are suddenly going to, you know, work, every, work themselves out. I can't promise you that. What I can promise you is that you will live a life experiencing the, God's goodness and faithfulness in a way that you have never, ever before. And so I extend that invitation to you. And if that's something that you want to do, I want you to think about it now, but you can make that commitment in your heart right now. And a little bit later, we're going to have time to pray together. And I want us to be, and, and, and you want to make that commitment to follow Jesus, to give up your life, to follow him. We would love to pray with you. So right now, I'm just going to say a quick prayer, and then the worship team, they're going to, they're going to sing another song. And during that song, you know, honestly, one of the best ways that we could respond to this idea of God's goodness and faithfulness is to worship him, to honor him, and to thank him for it. But this could also be a moment where we just sort of let the Spirit of God do his work, connect with him, be reminded of his truth, 